Welcome to Press Play, the Street Cred podcast with Elena Krasdow, yours truly, and Jimmy Moak from Street Cred PR. In this podcast, Jimmy and I will welcome industry leaders, journalists, influencers, and friends of the firm to shed some light on who they are and the various twists and turns that led them to where they are today. We're grateful to have you listening in, and we hope you enjoy the show. My name is Elena Krasnow. Welcome to Press Play, the Street Cred Podcast. I'm so grateful you're here. I'm the editorial manager and client brand evangelist at Street Cred PR and your host for today's show, along with co-host and managing partner, Jimmy Moak. We will break down the show into two segments, Press, where we dive into all the hard news about our guest's life and their professional goals, and then Play, where we have a little extra fun with it. Today, we are delighted to be joined by co-founder and CEO of Savvy Wealth, Riddick Malhotra. To give our listeners a little background on Riddick and his impressive career, he has started and sold two successful technology companies. The first one was Stream, a cloud storage software company that was acquired by Box in 2014, right before their multi-billion dollar IPO. The entrepreneurial bug bit again when Riddick and his co-founders launched another company, Elf, a fintech building money movement and financial ledger technology that was acquired by Brex in 2019. Riddick subsequently joined Brex as its director of product management. It was here that he started and built Brex Cash, the company's second business line offering cash and investment management products through its broker-dealer. Fast forward to today, and he's at the helm of his next company as the co-founder and CEO of Savvy Wealth, a digital-first platform for financial advisors centered around modernizing human financial advice. Riddick is also a Y Combinator alum and holds a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science from UC Berkeley. Riddick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Super excited to do this. Awesome. We are so excited to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. But before we dive into your story and the journey you've been on as an entrepreneur, which is certainly an elaborate one, we like to start off with an especially important question, which is, what did you have for lunch today? (laughs) So today was tacos from a New York City special uh, place called Tacombi. So two tacos uh, with a different kind of chicken. Yum. Beautiful. Now, when it comes to tacos, are mm. you a sour cream guy or non? Non-sour cream, but I will take any new kind of salsa or the special salsa that the place has. Uh, and I'm not shy to try as many out as and on the spice spectrum as well. And do you ever double down? on a weekly basis we all know the saying or the the day that is mostly reserved for tacos tuesday here we are on friday recording uh are tacos a go-to for you for lunch it you know i wish they were uh but i think uh usually it's a mexican rice beans chicken bowl of some sort uh Mm. but tacos are always a nice treat maybe once a month i love a good bowl all right one last taco related question Which camp do you fall in when it comes to cilantro? Are you pro or anti? I used to be anti. I now have switched to pro. Although I I think that's a pretty rare transition because I think I was going to say, I don't think I've ever heard of that. I I think uh, at this point I'm I'm always looking to find other things that add more flavor to the tacos and cilantro. I have to say does does do a little bit. Wow! So both of my parents are genetically dispositioned against cilantro. So I have a strong 
anti-cilantro approach in my taco making. <laughs> Riddick, thanks so much for answering that question. Believe me, I get it. We just went from talking about your impressive background, the fact <laughs> that you have a Bachelor of Science in, in Electrical Engineering from UC Berkeley to talking about sour cream and cilantro. We, we appreciate you rolling with the punches here on Press Play. I, I love it. This is uh, that's exactly the transition I was looking for. <laughs> well, oh. we had to humanize you somehow after listing all of your impressive <laughs> credentials, right? <laughs> awesome. Well, let's jump in. Start off by telling us a little bit about your journey as an entrepreneur. Did you always know you wanted to be a founder from a young age? Or did you have exposure to the weird and wonderful world of entrepreneurship a little later down the road? Yeah, let me let me start way back in the day. So for me, entrepreneurship as a concept wasn't really a thing until much later in life. But my start really came from when I was a kid. Um, and I, I fell in love in grade school with computers and just loved doing anything related to computers and technology. Uh, so as a kid, I, I was fascinated by the fact that, well, hey, you can play computer games and uh, browse the Internet and all of these things. And so I said, well, why don't I also figure out how I can make my own computer games or Internet websites and uh, so on and so forth? And so I started tinkering around, learned how to write code, learned how to develop these websites and and launch them online. And from a just a personal perspective, I you know always wanted the latest gadget or whatever else. Um, so to earn that money, I said, well, hey, if I can make these websites and games online, why don't I figure out a way to actually start charging for this and make money? So in middle school is when I would say I looking back is probably the first time I was uh, in the entrepreneurship, quote unquote, mode as a kid. Uh, so this is the first time I was able to build websites, put them up and earn money with advertising, subscription fees and a number of things. And uh, over time was able to generate, you know, good, good money for a 11, 12 year old at the time. Uh, saved enough to, you know, buy the latest gadgets and whatnot. And I just really caught the bug. And I said, well, hey, if I could do this and I could put up these websites and make money, I'm sure other people are looking to do this as well. And I'm doing the same thing over and over again. I have to put a website up. I have to do these things and just over and over again, the same thing. So then I started to actually sell that as a service to other people instead saying, hey, this is an easy way to create websites put them up, earn money, et cetera. And I will kind of help you do all of that. Uh, so that's everything from the hosting and all of those things. And so that became another business because now instead of me doing uh, uh, the work to uh, make my own websites, I was helping others kind of selling the uh, the picks and shovels, so to speak, to, to the other folks. And that became even a bigger business. So it, it was an important lesson at an early age on just kind of organically understanding how do you even start to make money from from nothing and then kind of build and learn over time on other market needs in order to kind of build a bigger and bigger business. So I've always credited that as a kind of a fun, fun start to entrepreneurship um, as a kid. And then fast forward, you know, when we were maybe about 10 years later or about eight years later, uh, I was now at the point that uh, going, I was deciding where to go for college and what I wanted to do. And again, is Thinking back to my past experiences, it, it didn't seem like I was going to go and select an entrepreneurship major or say, hey, that is exactly what I want to do. But to me, organically, I always had felt a connection to, well, look, if I can make these things using technology uh, and make something out of it, 
that's a skill that I want to hone in. And so that's really where I decided, let me go and be and study electrical engineering and computer science. Uh, and a year and a half into college, that's when I, I, you know, organically, again, just had a number of these ideas tinkering around and said, well, look, I really do strongly believe in, um, in, in, you know, pursuing one of these full time instead of taking a more traditional path of working somewhere else. Uh, and, uh, that's, that's kind of the first, I would say, professional foray into entrepreneurship when we started the first company stream, which you mentioned. So I'll pause there. Hopefully that gives you the, the back wow. background to what it started. So how old were you when you started stream? I was 19 at the time. Jimmy, well, what were you doing when you were 19? <laughs> well, crazy story, but I was a dad at that age. So uh, totally uh, other end of the spectrum. Did you, at, at what age did you start to accumulate and have the need for employees? Was this soon after you were 19 or talk about that dynamic? Thinking back to it, even when running those initial, let's call it early online businesses uh, in middle school, I remember oh while there were there wasn't a formal concept of employees or anything at the time, but online kind of while learning about how to do this, I actually used to rely on online communities quite a bit. And so back then it was all about, you know, using these web forums, other tutorials, and sometimes just instant messenger with folks that you connected with these communities. And so over time, I actually built up a number of folks who were interested and they would help me part-time and return for some effectively some, monetary exchange, right? So again, the concept of employees and employment wasn't as as formalized in my head, but in practice, that was what, what was happening. And it was very organic, you know, hit some scaling issues, couldn't actually manage a number of customer support tickets or or had some issues operationally running this service on to help others put websites up. And so I got other people to help and 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 paid them a little bit. Um, so that's probably the first, first time it actually happened. And then wow. of course with the, the actual businesses later on in life, um, 19, et cetera, onwards. Uh, that's when we had a much more formal way to hire and have employees. Wow. I can't think of many 12 and 13 year olds in my life that had employees at that age. <laughs> that's really impressive. Um, to bring us like a little bit further into the future, you're now building Elf. What was that stage of your journey like from its inception through the eventual, eventual sale to Brex in 2019? Yeah, so the the uh, starting Elf was something that was very intentional. So for for us, when when I was nineteen, my it was me and another friend from college. We ended up starting the first company, Stream, and a few years later, uh, it was successful. We had hired our friends, and it was running well. And we sold that company to to Box. Uh, and after a few years staying at Box, integrating our software in, and and growing that team, and making sure everything was good there. Uh, we got the same team back together again. And again, we we were always interested in building new things and finding ways to improve some sort of an industry or, and use our skills there. So getting that team back together, we basically said, look, it's really important that we work together and we'll, we'll work together to figure out where we want to hone and, and, and implement our skills. So starting Elf was uh, one of the things that we realized was we went and talked to a number of folks in across the financial services industry. Uh, and that included, actually, I would say financial services and also at the time uh, explored uh, cryptocurrency as as uh, that was coming up in, in 2017, 2018 or so. Um, we explored uh, 
talking to banks, even casinos, as they have a, a number of financial service needs and a whole different kind of uh, host of people that needed something related to financial services. So that was really what we gravitated towards purely organically of, hey, maybe this is an area we should work in. And after talking to uh, about 100 or so um, folks in, you can call it chief innovation officer type roles or in the IT department or some sort of R&D at these types of institutions, what we realized was the main, the, the, the problem we wanted to solve was, uh, was effectively to track currency movement of some sort or basically multi-party transactions. Very niche, very kind of uh, ingrained type of problem to realize, but we realized that was the common thread. Uh, talking to a lot of folks that were uh, part of com- you know, running community banks or even casinos and, and other kind of similar institutions, they had a tough time tracking all of this money movement across a consolidated ledger across multiple different entities internally and externally. So that was the technology we started to build and ultimately kind of started to pilot with these folks. Uh, And right around then in 2019, one of the things that we were always thinking about was as a business, does it make sense for us to be building this technology, which we can call kind of financial infrastructure, so to speak, or is it a better business to be in the what we would call end consumer business, the application layer where you're actually the provider themselves, the, the bank or the casino or whomever else? Mm. And I think our thesis changed. We actually felt that it's better and more lucrative as a business to be in the latter. And so it was kind of a, a, a great timing uh, when Brex also, we were connected with them. And Brex, for everyone's knowledge, is a corporate credit card, corporate banking, spend management suite of software. At the time, they'd only launched their corporate card product. And so for us, it became a really good fit because we were able to uh, merge with them and get acquired uh, and effectively use our skill set and technology to start their second business line, which was effectively this corporate banking and cash management and investment management line of products across that. Wow. Wow. I'm seeing a follow-up bubbling on your lips, Jimmy. Yeah, sorry. Uh, searching for the words. A quick ask would be, so obviously very young, entrepreneur, aggressive. We're talking about two companies built during your college career. Is that right? At this time, it would be post-college, uh, okay. but let's call okay. it with in, in my 20s. Uh, okay. that, that's right. And there's this founders syndrome thing. Like you, you're creating this baby, it's growing, it's becoming profitable, it's solving a need. So the value prop is clear. Talk a little bit about, uh, and I hope I'm not jumping ahead here, but I know that Elena will keep me keep me legit. What was it like entering exit talks already? Like at such a young age as an entrepreneur. Because you're, you've got to be thinking about yourself. Wow, I'm in my mid twenties. Retirement is something that is decades away. Uh, even if there is a nice pot of gold in- included there, like walk through that a little bit. It's it's a good question. I, I've never I never thought of it um, so deeply like that. But I think retrospectively, I could probably give you my my thought process of what was going on. I think fundamentally. I, I, I always think about first principles quite often. And and one of the things that I, I've realized about myself, which 
explains kind of both of those exits in the process was as someone that liked building things, decided to be study engineering and then start two different companies. The thing in my, the thing that feels the most rewarding is to make something people want. And mm. I think if you have an exit, that's one step towards that uh, and able to integrate that technology, build something and see it in the hands of people is the most rewarding thing. So looking back, look, financially fantastic outcomes, but I would say that was almost always secondary uh, to just feel it, the feeling of having this become something that people were actually using that, that euphoria I can never replace. And so that, wow. that was what I was always looking for. Um, but look, tactically speaking, I think those talks are obviously very intense. They have a lot at stake. Uh, it's, you know, you're, you're, you've built something and it's a very serious conversation. Uh, it's like anything else. You know, I, I asked a lot of other folks who had done it were much better than me and were much more, much further along in their career, got all the notes and synthesized their learnings and learned quickly. And I think that's, that's the only way you can approach these things. Awesome. Well said. So that also makes a lot of sense in terms of what happened next. Um, so you had just left Brex. You're figuring out what you want to do. What problem was it that you saw that needed solving, which led you to launch Savvy Wealth? Yeah, th this was uh, this this was something that had been in my mind for a number of years. So going back to the time when we had sold our first company to Box, and then Box went public a few months after, uh, I, I had a very very fantastic problem, which was, hey, well, what do we do with the proceeds from the sale and now the company being public and liquid? So at the time, I got the advice from our investors to go find a financial advisor and, and work with them to understand what my options were. And at the time, I, I did not know what to even ask or where to even start. So I ended up actually finding an individual that was uh, helping others find financial advisors. And, and this individual was effectively running a consulting firm now, and I would say more uh, retired from his past career, which was actually running the wealth management department uh, at UBS. So mm -hmm. very experienced in terms of everything related to financial advisors, hiring, managing, knowing what's good and what's, what's not. So working with him and his consulting firm, he was able to guide me on all the different questions to ask what makes a good financial advisor, and even kind of helped me through that process, which really got me thinking about it just from, again, from a personal need. And the thing I realized is I really just really enjoyed the industry. So I, I used to spend a lot of my time learning about uh, what how financial advisors work, uh, the things that they are recommending to others, and just learning everything about the wealth management industry here. So oh, uh, over kind of that let's call it seven year period between that moment and starting Savvy Wealth, there was two things that I, I found. Uh, one was that as a client, I realized that the value of an actual financial advisor was, was part of none. It, the robo-advisor movement and all of those things that were coming about at the time did not compare because the individual's knowledge and ability to personalize the advice was very valuable. And the second thing I realized was, despite that, the actual experience was always a little puzzling to me because it was very manual from a client's perspective, kind of snail mailing documents in, uh, no dashboards, emails and phone calls is how we were always communicating. And so it, it never made sense as to why the experience itself had to be that way when the value was so high. 
So over that seven year period, I ended up talking to maybe a hundred different wealth managers, uh, a number of folks in the uh, ecosystem building technology and a whole other suite of services here. And my goal here was to understand the pain points and actually look for a company to invest in. I never thought about building something in here, but really just who is fixing this problem of making a much dramatically better experience uh, in the industry. I never found any conviction around this, around any of the approaches here, and ultimately realized that the core problem is that the actual financial advisor that is working with clients is also wants a better experience, right? No one's asking mm-hmm. the client to have, you know, send paper forms, et cetera, but their hands are tied as well, whether it's red tape at the firm or hard to integrate the technology uh, that they're buying and a number of other things. So fast forward to 2021, this, the solution that we ended up at with Savvy was we can't just build technology and sell it. You can't just create, you know, another wealth management firm and do things the right, the same way. What we thought this right solution is you really got to combine both because you have to build the technology and operational support. So it's much, much more advanced than what exists today, but also implement it from a process and compliance perspective such that it doesn't get mired in the red tape and just get lost like other, like it is at other firms. So that's really how we, we got started. Um, you know, it was organically kind of just brewing in my head, um, by, by the time 2021 hit. That's amazing. Obviously, when it comes to the to the uh, the balance sheet, we're we're quite different. But you talked to one hundred firms, and I and I heard you about the robos. Like I'll, I'll use Ivy, um, full disclosure, a client or Marcus for my cash. To me, that just cash management and what I might be able to get on yield from that return, that is a suitable robo experience. But when it comes to financial life planning, make no mistake, I want to work with a human that is almost um, bionic because they have all of the tech and the and the bells and whistles available to them. And why is that? Because when things start to get complex, and now as a business owner, they are, and as a father, they are, um, I want someone to necessarily, not necessarily blame but I don't want to be the one who is held accountable for all of the decisions. And that's predominantly what happens in the robo front. You'd you'd agree with this, right? I mean, it it should go without saying, but when you were meeting with these 100 companies, I got to know, did any of them get close to earning your trust? And uh, I heard you uh, wanted to potentially invest in them but did you choose on an advisor during that journey or did you know all along, forget it, I've got to build what I think is needed? It's a great question. I actually did work with a, a number of different advisors over that time period. And that's really where I learned that this the, the, the value to your point of having an actual human be the one that's helping with everything related to financial planning, advice, et cetera. So... The, the experience of working with an advisor was critical in the decision to actually go and start Savvy. Uh, and it's through that experience, I, you know, it helped me understand the gaps as well from both a client's perspective, but also an advisor's perspective on how the experience can be so, so much better, which is a large part of how we think about it at Savvy, where 
we aren't just building a new client dashboard or some, you know, performance reporting tooling. It really is how do we give the advisor better tools and integrated all in one experience to do a better job so that they can be superpowers. They, they basically get superpowers in order to work with their clients uh, best. And so that might mean that we make a, you know, we've made a client dashboard, but that enables the advisor to have a better relationship with the, the client and give them a better experience. We have an advisor dashboard, but that enables the advisor to do better and faster and, and smarter work. All right. Thank you so much for getting into all the details of the technology. What we're curious about now is what kind of advisors are being attracted to come work at Savvy Advisors? It's a it's a great question. We've found that the the, the best kind of advisors that work uh, on our platform are typically mid career. So they are uh, they're, they're not looking to start in and build a book of business. They've already found uh, maybe a set of clients. They know their niche well and they're looking to grow. Uh, and they're also not looking to retire just anytime soon. So that's number one. Uh, number two, typically they are uh, either thinking about moving to an independent model or already are in some sort of independent model, but may not have gotten the support that they need. So that's typically criteria number two. And then third is uh, they are anywhere in the United States. We, we don't actually, we don't, we don't restrict anyone uh, in terms of locations with office, et cetera. Everything we've built, including the, the corporate infrastructure the actual support systems and everything is remote friendly. And in fact, over half of our company today is uh, works remotely. So those are the three different criteria. And we found that's the perfect advisor uh, that we've been able to bring on and really help uh, grow and, and take a lot of that middle and back office uh, burden off of their plate. Amazing. How, um, what are your personal thoughts on advisors that are coming from the the wirehouse or the broker dealer world that want to go purely independent, pure fiduciary. Um, is that a tough transition? Have you experienced that? Are you trying to avoid that? Not at all. We're, we're embracing it um, and, and happily embracing it because it's, it's a transition that's very popular these days. A lot of advisors are thinking about it, but I think the questions that they have that they ask us is, well, how does it actually happen? How do we actually make that transition? Obviously, a number of issues where you know you might have business. They might have business that is uh, not conducive to the independent world, um, or maybe they're thinking about well, how long does the transition take? A whole suite of things. Uh, because we've done this so many different times, we actually have all of the infrastructure that allows them to transition that business over uh, into an independent model. So they're not losing any clients or losing any business out, and they can kind of keep that keep those relationships and business. And everything is is handled uh, for them. So, for example, transitioning their clients all done um, either by our in, in the back end by our systems or uh, through an, a fully digital onboarding flow that the client fills out it takes less than fifteen minutes. And so, these are the kinds of fears and, and questions that typically uh, mire down uh, someone that's interested in making that transition, but may not may be wondering, well, hey, do I have to spend months? filling out paperwork just to move these clients over and only to find, well, half the business doesn't move over. We found solutions for each and every one of those puzzle pieces. So cool. So cool. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the role of public relations and marketing in driving the success of the companies that you have built and sold. 
So from your experience as a founder, how have you seen the role of those two entities either serve as a hindrance or really offer an incredible boost? Yeah, it's uh, it, you know there's a saying they say first time founders think a lot about the the product or service being offered. The second time founders and 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 I guess second and later think about the go to market demand, marketing and press and and those things a lot more because it it turns out kind of as you make the mistakes your first time around, you realize that the importance of a good product that's table stakes. You need to have something that people want. But if you do not have the right way to amplify and 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 craft the message so other people understand it in a succinct, easy, quick, bite-sized way, then it's no better than a science experiment that's done in a quarter. And so, over the years across the different companies, you kind of uh, we've kind of evolved our thinking as well. Where the first time around, a lot of the marketing was done, and and press was me just reaching out to hundreds of reporters doing things that, you know, learning marketing on the fly and probably doing things that weren't the right things to do. And then the second and now the third time around being very sophisticated about, look, we spend our time and energy on the areas that actually move the business forward. Mm. When in areas of PR, in this case, you know, is our time is best spent finding the best firm and actually being able to rely on them as as, as thought partners in actually helping us craft that PR strategy and executing around it. So that's the way we think about it from a PR and press perspective. And of course, we've, uh, you know, working with the best here at StreetCred. So that is, uh, that's kind of how our thinking has evolved. Um, and then on the marketing side, you know, PR is one component of marketing. But again, marketing for us actually is twofold. One is, you know, how do we help uh, our advisors with marketing, because that's obviously a core part of running their book of business. Uh, and then second is how do we actually get the word out about what we're doing as well? So we we think about that a lot internally about how do we create that demand, awareness, et cetera. And I think that's just a, a byproduct of learning that it's how important it is in the early days uh, from the first two startups. Absolutely. Any advice you would offer to other startup founders that are considering working with a PR or a marketing firm? I, I would say a couple things. Number one is uh, really understand what the goals and requirements are, uh, and, and and to be very tactical there, be as specific as possible. Uh, for example, for us, it was hey, who, which PR firm is going to be nimble and scrappy, but also have the inner kind of access and understanding of the wealth management industry, which is very different than talking to let's call it the the tech reporters and and other industries. And so, so that 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 was those are the two, top two goals among a number of others. And I think it it's really easy to get caught up with hey, well, let's just get generic advice on what other PR firms folks are working with and maybe talk to the flashiest one or the ones that has the best logos uh, that because they the logos are recognizable. But if they're not solving the goals that you have set out, um, and and then it's that's not worth it. Um, so that's number one, set those goals. Uh, number two is uh, ask for referrals and references, because that is going to speak louder than any sort of web page or web presence online. Again, if you're if you're speaking to any PR marketing firms, they're going to be amazing at marketing and themselves. So that's that's where you maybe want to put less focus and actually speak directly to folks that have worked with them um, to understand. 
And I know that was a critical part of our process as well. Um, and then the third is just at the forefront, realize that it uh, ask, ask the first principles question of, is this something to invest in at this time? Because you don't want to be in a situation where expectations are mismatched. It's, it's, you know, you're obviously paying for that support. And if the, if the dollars that are being invested in a, uh, in, in supporting for a marketing firm or a PR firm are not achieving the goals, that it may not be the right time for a company to actually be working with someone. So uh, timing is also very important. Definitely would agree with all three of those points. It might be good to also warn our listeners that when you're seeking a PR firm, uh, don't be surprised if you end up kissing a lot of frogs along the way. <laughs> because, and, and that goes from our standpoint too. Uh, just because we think we're, or we know that we're good within the world of wealth management, that doesn't mean we are the perfect fit for every client because some just might have certain ways of, of, of working internally as, as their own business, where it doesn't necessarily mesh with how we go about supporting that and amplifying their value prop or what it might be. Absolutely. Exactly. hundred percent. I think uh, it's like hiring someone when you're hiring someone, you're assessing the skill set and how they fit into the the larger organization and culture and ways of working or in good input to it apply the same level of rigor there as you would with selecting a PR firm or marketing firm to work with. All great advice. And it's been so wonderful to hear more about your background and the story that started when you were a middle schooler, which is my mind is still wrapping itself around that fact. But we would love to dive into our second segment of the show now and get into some play. We know obviously so much about your career now, but if you weren't an entrepreneur in financial services, what on earth do you think you'd be doing? Oh man, um, hmm. I think I think one of two things. Uh, one is uh, in some way giving back. Uh, in the one thing that I think I know somewhat well now is uh, how to start and operate early stage companies and help them scale and grow into becoming larger. Uh, whatever that translates into, I don't know, but yeah. I think it, it always feels good. Maybe the second one, I've always thought, you know, one of the biggest ways to make an impact uh, is um, is really uh, helping educate or, or teach uh, the, the next generation. So one of the things I've always thought is um, it'd be very fascinating and, and cool to make and write and, and create children's books where there's some sort of a lesson behind it, because if you can impart some level of fundamental wisdom or something on a, on a child and do it at a mass scale, you're, you're actually impacting the future of the world in some sense. Best answer to that question yet. Hands down. That's amazing. I love that. (laughs) I can't wait. I guarantee someday we're going to see Riddick Malhotra publishing his first children's book. (laughs) (laughs) Someday. Someday. About you when you were 12, hopefully not rolling down hills like the rest of us, but actually doing real things and hiring people <laughs> and making money. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you log off for the day. What are you doing for fun? What happens after work? You know, I think the the weekdays are relatively boring, you know, just uh, cool down with some sort of TV, uh, catch up with uh, friends. Um, 
my partner, uh, et cetera. So nothing, nothing crazy exciting there. I would say maybe I, I, I'm always looking at what my next, uh, I guess, curiosity is. And I'm always learning or looking at things outside of the context of work. And the latest has been just finding uh, amazing different kinds of foods that taste really good, but are also nutritionally really good. Mm. Um, so that's been a, that's been a fun, uh, curiosity that I've been, I've been looking at. Are you Hence the cilantro exploration? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Are you a good cook or is this you're going out? This is, uh, I'm, I'm not a cook, uh, at all. Forget good. Uh, even so that's something, that's an area I would say, uh, to learn at some point, but, um, uh, this is actually more finding snacks that are actually very, very healthy from a nutrition facts perspective, but also, and taste really, really good. Um, so not like the cardboardy stuff that might look good on a on a nutrition fact. Uh, so that's been that's been my niche uh, these days. Nice. You're in a good city to do the research, so that's good. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, we're just going to close out the show. We like to end with a moment of gratitude. Would love for you to shout out someone in the industry you admire, perhaps someone on your team, really anybody that comes to mind. Um, yeah, go for it. You know, in the industry, uh, I would say that it's been, I'm very grateful and it's actually very heartwarming that so many folks that are, I would say, giants and icons in the industry were willing to back us and help us uh, from the start. Uh, these are folks at Jordan Park, uh, uh, some folks at Iconic, um, uh, an individual, uh, Vamsi, who used to be running uh, one of the teams at Focus Financial, and a number of others I'm probably forgetting. Um, but really, I think the amount of support and and backing we've gotten from those folks uh purely because they they want to help others i think has been has been um uh, exceeded my expectations so that'd be my shout out riddick it has been so incredible having you on the show thank you so much for sharing your story with us as well as some fun facts that everyone should also be very excited about to our listeners we really hope that you learned something new and enjoyed hearing about riddick's story as an entrepreneur be sure to write us via email at pressplay at streetcredpr.com to tell us what you think, ask us any questions, suggest any guests, or even just to tell us what you've had for lunch today. Thanks again for tuning in, and we can't wait to introduce you to our next guest. Thank you for listening to Press Play, the Streetcred podcast. Visit our website at streetcredpr.com and find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Please don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. And if you enjoyed the episode, we'd love nothing more than if you would rate and review the show. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of StreetCred PR. The content has been made available for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. If you have questions about the show or StreetCred PR, feel free to reach out to us. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>